0: You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki.
1: I think what got me through all those periods was drugs and alcohol, because it would be a lifeline out of the tedium of low-paid employment. And occasionally, music would rear its head and go, what about this idea? And you'd go, oh yeah, yeah, and you'd try it. Occasionally an album would come to you that would just change your life, you know, or completely get you excited again about wanting to write something. Initially I did work towards music, but after a while that plan got lost and then it was just survival. Gimme, give gimme! Give Hello there, my name's Jason Williamson. I'm singer in Sleaford Mods. We've got a new album out currently called Spear Ribs on Rough Trade Records.
0: British punk duo Sleaford Mods are singer Jason Williamson and producer Andrew Fern. They first introduced their gritty songs and grim worldview to us in Austerity Dogs, their 2014 debut. Jason Williamson delivered profanity-laced searing takedowns of poseurs and the powers that be through the lens of an artist disillusioned with the music scene and hardened by the economic despair he saw around him. Their music struck a chord, and soon Sleaford Mods were hailed as the modern voice of Britain. Iggy Pop was a fan. Now three successful UK Top 10 albums later, Jason Williamson knows that he can't write the same songs about being hard done by society. How does a band that finds fame in being working class still remain relevant once they move up the social ladder and start to achieve the markers of success? In this episode, Jason talks about Spare Ribs, their 11th studio album. It turns out they still have plenty to shout about, from the Tories to the class tourists.
2: I've been out playing to this mindless abandon, this ropey idea about love and connection. Just stuck on silly ideas, cause it's all you can call, you fucking class tourists, Who makes your social group on. invention just on silly ideas because you can cook this kitchen's looking sketchy makes you chopping boards off
0: before we hear more about their disdain with the current conservative or tory government jason opens up about his childhood and growing up in another era when the politics of austerity were also at play so you live in Nottingham now, but you grew up in Grantham, Lincolnshire. I yep. understand it's Margaret Thatcher's birthplace. Yeah. And so for those of us who don't know the, the north of England in the same way, can you paint us a picture of what it was like growing up there?
1: It was pretty boring, really. It was quite depressing, just optionless, featureless. You know, there wasn't a lot going on. I don't know. I just remember having options and going out when I used to go out and play with friends. Either petty criminality stealing cars or breaking into shops or smashing things you either did that or you stayed at home you know and that's it that's literally all you had and it kind of morphed into coming of age turning 16 leaving school just trying to hold on to things that that look like a little bit of inspiration you know music film dreaming of getting out basically
0: So is there a specific memory that you have that when you think about still kind of makes you sad? Maybe you don't even want to think about.
1: Yeah, I think like the way people turn out and they're not even aware of it. Some people are just absolutely, they're just dead from birth, aren't they? They've got no chance. The way they've been brought up, their parents and how they turn into their parents Mm -hmm. and keep repeating the same mistakes, it's really sad. It's it's a real tragedy, you know, and I see a lot of that in old friends and um, people are new. Yeah, it's a bit of an heartbreaker.
0: One of your songs, Fish Cakes, you uh-huh. talk about your childhood a little bit. Did you zero in on a particular memory from your childhood there?
1: No, it's just a collection of memories, really, of spending birthdays in chip shops because mum didn't have much money, but I mean, that was great to me. Chip shops are brilliant. You know, secondhand presents at Christmas, again, it didn't bother me because there were always presents I wanted. It, I didn't care if they were secondhand.
0: So do you have one specific memory that makes you happy?
1: Christmas Day, actually. Christmas Days were always happy. I always have fond memories of those times. Various holidays we went on. Again, I have fond memories of those. I was lucky enough to to go over to Greece to visit relations when I was like eight, I think. That was a big deal, you know, going on an aeroplane and going over there and and meeting a family in Athens. And I've got fond memories of that. But yeah, you know, generally a lot of it was quite heavy, I think. There seemed to be a succession of events that, that, that were very heavy, you know. So a lot of it is you get quite tense when you think about it. Do you know what I mean? It's, and I don't think that'll change, will it, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, you get your head around it a bit more.
0: Yeah. When did you yourself become aware of, like, songs and music and kind of how transformative, like you said, it, it, the music could actually take you somewhere else?
1: From a very early age, I guess, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. From the age of 10, possibly earlier than that. Music, mm-hmm. the traditional format of a pop song, all of these things appealed from a very early age.
0: Can you remember what were the first couple of songs that as a kid you were like, hey, I like that?
1: Stuff like Taste of Honey from the Beatles, but I think that's a cover actually. Heart of Glass by Blondie. Anything from the Sex Pistols. A soundtrack to Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Then there was other stuff, stuff that I wasn't really wouldn't really be a fan of, but that was everywhere. Adam and the Ants, Human Lee, Neil Diamond. I got given lots of records when I was a kid, but I was not interested. You know, I got introduced to punk at about the age of ten, and was heavily interested in that. And that's when my um, interest in sort of collecting vinyl sort of started.
0: Is this when you put margarine in your hair and tried to be a punk?
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. Well, the haircut was called a spike. It was kind of a, a mixture of David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust kind of haircut without, you know, the kind of long bits at the back. It had kind of been adopted by the 70s punks, hadn't it? So margarine was the go-to uh, hair appliance <laughs> back in the day, definitely.
0: <laughs> um, so when did you actually start making music then and um, wanting to do it in a more serious way?
1: I was in a band briefly. I went for one rehearsal punk band when I was about 11, but that didn't come off at all. I spent ages writing lyrics for songs. Me and the guitarists rehearsed quite a lot, and then I went to the rehearsal, and the drummer just couldn't stop laughing at me because I was so serious. I was really screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Not screaming, but I had a really rah, punk face on, and he, he just found it funny. As amateurs do, you know. <laughs> when you've got imposters in the room, they're the first ones to start making out that it's not very good because it makes them feel uncomfortable. But, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, after that, I didn't touch anything till I think I was about 17 and I was in a band when I was studying at college, an indie band. Then I started tinkering with that business and then went off that again. And then didn't start again until 1992. So I was about 22.
0: You also fell in love with the Jam and Paul Weller enough to like call your band the Sleaford Mods when you eventually started playing as the Sleaford Mods. But what was it about the Jam that made you go, "Yeah, that's my people"?
1: I think the Jam was like more of a peer pressure thing initially, and I started listening to them when I was about 11 uh because everybody else was people considered the sex pistols to be a bit academic intelligent which obviously is not the case you know but i think they're a band that have revealed themselves over time whereas the jam were were more in tune with the kind of working class consciousness of that period i think mm-hmm. People were not yet ready to insult the Queen, really. And, you know, the Pistols were doing that, or to acknowledge the fact that their lives were controlled by a very small group of people. Whereas the Jam were just talking about everyday things. And I think there was a tradition of that, obviously, with people like the Kinks uh, and any of those bands from 10 years previous. So, so initially it was peer group pressure, but I really did get into it. You couldn't help it. It was a very powerful character, poor Weller was, in the late 70s and moving forward. But yeah, you know, they were definitely a hard-hitting band that spoke to a lot of working class kids.
0: So how old were you when you went to your first rave and what was the experience like in the early days? Were you like going to into rave at fields or were you already in clubs?
1: It was clubs. I was a clubber. I wasn't a raver. You had you were either a clubber or a raver in the early 90s, or you know, sort of uh there was there was literally those two kind of groups raving was not for me. My sister was a raver, but I was a clubber. My first sort of venture out to a club was drug free. Actually. I was a bit stoned and drunk, but really couldn't understand why everybody was just constantly dancing. And then I think the second time we went is when I started dabbling with, uh, ecstasy and, uh, Oh, it's fantastic. It really, really was.
0: And then when did you get into things like the Wu-Tang Clan?
1: I was late to them. I'd say 2003, 2004, I started listening to Enter the 36 Wu-Tang Chambers. And I didn't really discover any of the solo albums until God, 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really did believe it was the way forward for me to adopt that kind of method to making music.
0: What method was that?
1: Just the fact that it was uh, free of using any kind of traditional instrument to a certain degree, and it just basically laid its power in the skill of production, of making beats, and also wordplay, you know, rapping. So it was quite a minimalist setup, which really appealed to me. I was getting more and more into electronic music anyway from, say, 2003 onwards. The old traditional band setup was starting to really disinterest me uh, because everybody was doing it. And, you know, there's a million other people that were doing it better than me. So it was a case of, well, this isn't working and what else is. And it took a long time for something to stick. And, you know, hip hop, definitely, that minimalist form, just, you know, shouting into a microphone while somebody on a computer is recording you with music that they have electronically put together. With a keyboard, yeah, that was it. Bang. That's what I needed to do, I think.
0: By the time Jason wrote Job Seeker about the drudgery of being on that endless cycle of low-paid employment, he had been to London. He had fronted an indie band. When that didn't work, he had tried to get into drama school. Eventually, frustrated, he moved back north to Nottingham. When he first started performing as Sleaford Motts, he was a solo act performing in the local clubs.
2: Mr. Williamson, your employment history looks quite impressive. I'm looking at three managerial positions you previously held with quite reputable companies. Isn't this something you'd like to go back to? Nah, I just end up fucking robbing the place. You got a till full of 20s looking at your day? Well, I'm either going to fucking bank it. I've got drugs to take. And a mind to break. Job seeker, can a strong bow, I'm a mess. Desperately clutching on to a leaf depression. Supplied to me by the NHS. It's anyone's guess how I got here. Anyone's guess how I'll go. I'll suck on a roll or pull your jeans or fuck off. I'm going home, job seeker,
0: people he performed for recognised their frustrations in his songs. They too wanted to swear at their middle class bosses or the case manager at their unemployment office. But they couldn't for fear of losing their income or benefits. In a Sleep at Mod song, there was validation for their pain and frustration. They got catharsis. And they were definitely not getting that from the public school boys and the guitar bands they were forming all from the reality TV X factor style bands that came pre-made to suit the demographics of youth so you did job seeker before you had met andrew and then you guys yeah. because you reworked it a little bit and it's on all that glue isn't it
1: yeah yeah
0: um so you already had a taste of like okay this the way you were performing People were really Uh kind of, it was resonating with them and the things you were talking about with JobSeeker about where you were at. It's almost like somebody who had given up on like being that rock star. It was like a little, like, fuck you, this is where I'm at and I'm just going to write about that.
1: That was it. And I think that was the saving grace because all the way through that period I could not understand why I was not in a successful band. Because I I believe that I had a better perception than most people in my environment. I felt like I had a better idea and ability. But I mean, I think that was all clouded in just arrogance, really. I think it wasn't for me, you know, it wasn't meant to be. But I love music. I loved it so much. I love performing. I love trying to express myself. It was just a case of waiting around until something came along. You know what I mean?
0: Recently, Jason mentioned reading the autobiography of Mark Lanigan, the singer from one of Seattle's seminal grunge bands, The Screaming Trees. It gave an insight into Jason's own struggle with addiction. As much as he saw the parallel in the turmoil that Lanigan went through, it was a huge relief for him to read the memoir from the vantage point of someone who is now clean and sober.
1: Oh God, yeah. Yeah, completely. I think he took it to a next level with that. I don't suppose for one minute that Mark Lanigan feels... Any better for, for a story of narcotic disarray that kind of overshadows everybody else's. I mean, I'm sure there's some, some even bleaker stories from people, but I mean, the way he described just the ongoing, just tedium of it was really powerful. I thought, and it obviously reminded me of what I went through and, but also the tedium of trying to reach your goals uh and what i mean by that is you know the the, the, the constant tours he did with a band and not being happy with it but sticking with it because he wanted that payday eventually he knew that he was more than just somebody's lackey singer that all resonated with me as well the alienation from his parents of a featureless landscape as, as a kid all of that resonated obviously the story of Seattle and the bands there that created a relatively new form of music with Lanigan's band included as well. You know, uh, all of that, again, was brilliant because these people weren't messing around. They were properly into it. Regardless of their pitfalls as uh, substance abusers, they were bang into the music. They were progressives, you know, and I think that really struck a chord, definitely.
0: For you, I mean, like, what was it like um, just... Going to all those dead end jobs all those years ago, and just kind of thinking I'm going to keep doing this music thing. Was there ever a point where you're like, just fuck it, you know, it's just not worth it? Or was that always your light that was the thing that saved you?
1: No, it wasn't. It was. It got lost. It, I lost it. It was like it went a long time ago. You know what I mean? The idea of there it was still at the end of the day, there was at least there was that to look at. It just wasn't there. I think what got me through all those periods was drugs and alcohol because I just love getting off my head and I love getting drunk. And they would, it would be a lifeline out of the tedium of, of low paid employment. And, you know, occasionally music would rear its head and go, what about this idea? And you'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, and you try it. Occasionally, an album would come to you that would just change your life, you know, or completely get you excited again about wanting to write something. Uh, And so that's how it was. Initially, I did work towards music, but after a while, the music, it just got lost, that plan got lost, and then it was just survival. And then it was like, well... Survival was so boring, uh, there was nothing really, apart from alcohol and drugs and clothes, trying to look good and daydreaming. Yes, music played a part, but uh, it was few and far between for a long time. But it just so happened that my skill set was in music. So whenever it did rear its head, I could connect to it straight away and work on whatever wave of inspiration had hit me.
0: In 2012, after releasing a few of these solo albums, Jason met self-taught producer Andrew Fern and Sleaford Mods became the duo we know today. Fern, like him, was also in his early 40s and had been making and releasing music under the radar and on his own for several years. When you met Andrew, did you think in your head, that's exactly what I need?
1: No, when we first met, it was, a bit, it was a bit awkward when we first met. Not awkward, but I just wasn't getting what I wanted, uh, although it was all right. Uh, and when I listened back to that first song we wrote, it was called All That Glue, and we named the compilation album we released last year, named it after that first song. Mm-hmm. And the song's actually all right. Andrew was listening to a lot of dubstep, and a lot of other weird stuff. His intake of inspiration is is absolutely bottomless. He he can be inspired by anything. So it's a waste of time trying to narrow it down, you know. But at the time, I think he was carrying a lot of dubstep. And he obviously had a real liking for grime and hip-hop. So there was a lot of common interest there. But, yeah, it wasn't too fruitful for the first time. And then I, I didn't bother after that. I didn't bother contacting him. And, um I had an idea for going to a studio one day on my own using a bass player I got hold of. And I saw that he joined Facebook and I needed somebody else to come down and record it. So I I wondered if, you know, I got in touch with him again, said, you fancy it. And uh, that's how we started again.
0: What was that first couple of songs that you sort of worked on that you went, yeah, this is going to work?
1: From that point when he came to the studio that night, which he wasn't too impressed with (laughs) because... It was just like, why have you got a bass player and I can do that? And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> and you could just tell he was like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> so um, I don't know. It's, it took about another year after that. And when we started doing – um Songs off the first album, like uh, I Don't Want a Disco or Two. You,
2: you make more money out of my existence than I do. I dodge the small tanners, the music scene, think they are Shit bands, you're the all wankers. man, bores, white funk snores. Good relationships with the industry donkeys and live down south. Talent forecasts, shut, shut your, your mouth. mouth. I don't want a disco
1: or two. What else? McFlurry. And particularly when we hit on Fizzy and uh, My Jampandy, I knew that things were really starting to take shape. He was really getting the ideas and eventually just took it and ran.
0: Their debut austerity dogs established them as a cult band. With each subsequent album, Divide and Exit, then Key Markets, their fan base would grow exponentially. In 2017, they released English Tapas, their first full-length on respected independent label, Rough Trade. But just before the release of their next album, 2019's Eaton Alive, they unexpectedly parted ways. Those series of albums that you have there right up with English Tapas and Eaten Alive, you were just kind of at every step of a way, it was like, this is a breakthrough. And then yeah. it's like, oh no, yeah. this is the breakthrough. With English Tapas, I feel like with BHS, it's really like it crossed over into mainstream in a lot of ways, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it did.
2: We are the Baldrick Sun and Black Caddys. We're going down on-
0: stands for British Home Stores a department store that was once a staple of British high streets fashion tycoon's of Philip Green infamously stripped it of its assets and as the company collapsed leaving thousands without jobs and pensions, he was spotted in the Greek Isles and Monaco on his multi-million dollar super yacht
2: oh, on a boat, mate, look at you.
0: But you also left Rough Trade at the time and you set up your mm-hmm. own label. And yeah. I understand your wife, Claire, took over as manager. I mean, what happened at that time? Because it sounds like you were you were making strides. And I would have thought, oh, they're going to go backwards. But you didn't really. You managed to go through and come out the other side, back on Rough Trade and even stronger.
1: Yeah, really weird. Even I didn't see that coming. Uh, but I won't settle for dog shit and I won't settle for laziness. It has to be good. And I'm sure that that approach will one day, it won't matter if I've got those principles. One day I'll just, will not have any ideas left. Andrew won't have any ideas left. Or will we? Can we just carry on doing this? You know what I mean? And doing it to a level that's respectable. I think initially going back to your point, the relationship with Rough Trade has helped massively and they don't really stick their oar in at all, but the connection with them seems to make the operation different. And both English Tapas and Spare Ribs are different albums. Eating Alive is obviously, but it's kind of a weird one because we weren't with Rough Trade. So it, I don't consider it as good as those two, you know, but it is still a stepping stone. I think we left Rough Trade with some bad advice from our old manager, he wanted to leave. He didn't feel that they were relevant, but it came to the point where it was obvious that he'd lost his way with it and he was just making excuses and he just wanted us to go independent again so he had more control over it and to do it in the way that he thought was best. But it wasn't best. We were a bigger band. We're not a DIY band anymore. And we we, we simply just outgrew him, you know, so we parted ways it was really weird. We were like two months before an album release. We had no album campaign or anything like that. Claire was there. Obviously she'd been there for a long time, sort of in the background, helping our old manager out. So it was obvious choice to get Claire on board and she only came in temporarily. It was, it was never going to be a, a surefire thing. She, she just wasn't convinced that she, she could do that, but lo and behold, here we are, you know, three top 10 albums later and God knows how many sold out tours. And we've definitely moved up a notch. You know, this is what the plan was. We wanted to move up. We wanted to get bigger, but not lose any of of its core values. And that's what's happened, you know.
0: Spare Ribs came together as a record during the pandemic and takes aim at the Tory government's mishandling of it. It also brought to bear a decade of bad policies and austerity measures at the expense of the working class and disenfranchised. For example, their push to break up or privatise parts of the NHS or National Health Service impacted its ability to serve people during the COVID crisis. Why did you call the album Spare Ribs?
1: I just think that in this country, at the start of the pandemic, the government thought more about the economic model than they did... Uh, the welfare of the citizens and uh, this was evident in the amount of unnecessary deaths that occurred in this country and are still going on uh, since the start of the pandemic A massive percentage of these have been disabled people so there's a very heavy disregard for certain social groups in this in this country and certain you know certain people it just got me thinking that we are all really depending on our position and our status and our, f- our financial position. We are all potentially spear ribs, fodder, expendable collateral in the face of capitalism, you know what I mean?
0: This greed and disregard for the people without the same privilege prompted him to write Shortcomings. It's a takedown of the political class and Dominic Cummings of the Tory party specifically. Cummings was a political strategist who served as Prime Minister Boris Johnson's short-lived chief advisor. He was an architect of some of the worst policies put forth by the Tory government during the decade since they came to power, and who Jason felt was an example of how arrogant people with immense privilege can behave.
2: He's gonna get all his dreams he's got. Sure, 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 sure come-ins. He's gonna mess himself so much, but it's all gonna come down hard.
0: Jason's words would prove prescient. Cummings was caught in a scandal when he broke COVID protocol and travelled. MPs then called for his resignation.
2: Hello there, I'm here today to talk about the importance of independent venues.
0: In Spare Ribs, Jason also takes aim at the people in the music industry who take up causes for their own good name as opposed to being really interested in helping.
2: I'm also secretly hoping that by agreeing to talk about the importance of independent venues I will then be in a position to move away from playing independent venues I'm no good with elocution to get myself into
1: Elocution, it was similar to Nudget. There are various characters that exist in this industry. You just don't believe. And they use ulterior motives, actions that step from one thing to another to, to elevate their own music. They do things like host award shows or front causes, charitable causes or talk about things in an earnest way and get into the papers with it. You'll have an article in a paper about, for example, Spotify, you know, how it's ripping off musicians, and the article's about that, but all you see is a picture of the person that is leading the campaign – so it's kind of like working towards them. You just get the impression that this isn't all it seems. It's kind of like a little bit of a comment about that. I mean, to be honest, there's in that. And it's it's arguable, it's debatable, you know. I'm being very cynical, I'm being unreasonable. I'm being negative and perhaps bitter. But why not? You know, why not suggest that in songs? Why sit there and try and be agreeable all of the time? Because I, I just think sometimes it's, I just don't believe them. It's just so insincere.
0: Being true to their roots is how Sleaford Mods made a name for themselves, a punk duo with two angry men. On Spare Ribs, there is an attempt to show a different side. Fish Cakes and Mork and Mindy both deal with Jason's childhood. In Fish Cakes, he talks about the mangled schools and Asbestos acorn trees, scenes from his impoverished council estate neighbourhood. While in Mork and Mindy, he talks about acting out violent
2: role play
0: because that's what he saw around him.
2: Mork and Mindy, action man and Cindy, I don't mess about, I make them kiss each other when my mum and dad go out, no messing, no curtain twitching, no stressing, I don't hang about, I get them down and dirty. That's what it's all about? The book off back to your own room Welcome. The- you don't usually
0: talk about your childhood in any sort of way, right in, no. in your in your music, so uh-huh. I imagine when you did this, it must have been difficult.
1: Yeah, but um only in the sense of will this work? I wasn't really that bothered about disclosing the information and then about answering any questions that might come my way about the song. But it was more so, will it work? Because, you know, stuff like this can fall into the category of self-pity and it can feel as if you are trying to evoke empathy when that is not the case at all. You know, these things were on my mind so much that I really thought they inspired the lyrics. They inspired my motivation to write a song about them. nice to
2: see I wanted the- Smell. Meadows, not Dying and
0: During the summer that the song was first written, Jason had a serious back injury. It was then brought to his attention that he'd suffered from a rare form of spina bifida as a child. For much of his childhood, he was plagued with back pain that was never properly diagnosed. At 12, he had a major spine operation. This was a trigger that brought back a flood of memories about his mother and other aspects of his childhood that he'd had forgotten, and it became an emotional time for him.
1: My relationship with my mum is very fractured. We don't quite know how to act with each other. Um, It's a weird one. From the age of about two to four, it suffered because my mum went into a deep depression, and she was put on electric shock therapy which is what they did with a lot of people uh, back in the day uh, to try and treat depression and it just it totally sent her west and so for a good two or three years I wasn't having the relationship I should have been having with my mum.
0: Though unaware of it at the time this introspective mood would creep into the album and give it a different dimension. You're not from round here, crash landed about a week also be yeah. the first time that women's voices are featured on a Sleaford Mods album. The state of it is alarming, so don't presume anything. As you hear on this track is up-and-comer Tor Maurice, who goes by the name Billy Nomates, Mates, while punk rocker Amy Taylor from Aussie group Amel and the Sniffers sings on Nudget. So in terms of their features for both of them, did they listen to your track, what you and Andrew have done so far, and then write their parts? Or do you already have ideas of what you want them to come in on?
1: With Tor, it was like, Can you sing the chorus the way I do? And she said, not a problem. Mm -hmm. I said, you can put a verse in there if you want. So she did her own verse. And uh, with Amy, initially it was like, can you do this? So she did it. Nobody was quite sure. She went back and did something else. And she sent that over and we took it to the studio. It still wasn't working. Andrew, at the last minute, turned around and said, why don't we just drop her in at the end and use it as like a hip hop feature? You can have her backing up the chorus. And then I got her doing the gimme gimme at the starts, which she sent a load of skits over and I chose that one. That was it. It just went whack.
0: Taking down what he sees as the disingenuous has meant that Jason has ruffled some feathers. He called out another punk band for appropriating working class roots. I hear there's a bit of beef between you and idols that goes back and forth.
1: uh (laughs) And
0: um, in my head, I was like, is this like a blur and oasis thing where just getting people drummed up? Or is there something really about their music and the way they sing it that bothers you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't really think either of us are as good as Blur or Racist, to be honest, for a start. Definitely not sold as many records. But no, I I, I I would prefer not to really talk about it because I think it's something that I've just covered so much over the last three months.
0: Jason finds their brand of punk too jovial compared to the gritty roots of what Sleaford Mods is about.
1: I, I can't see how it's anything near us and... I really hate it when we're compared to them.
0: The final female voice on Spare Ribs speaks to this class identity that Jason doesn't feel middle class bands should lay claim to. Academic Dr. Lisa McKenzie is a sociology professor specializing in working class issues and identity. She too doesn't subscribe to the idea that class interlopers should use working class markers like council estates and provincial accents as something they put on to look cool that they can take off when they return to their comfortable lives.
1: I wanted to sort of include her on there because a lot of our music still harks back to those roots, those working class roots of of struggle, of working, of just everything being shit. And I wanted to kind of, like, mix that in, if I could, in some way. So I asked her to send me over just a monologue. I didn't have a criteria. She just got on with it and sent me something. All them, all them, all them,
0: all them, all them skills, all that sewing, all that making Marks and Spencers knickers. Kind of adds to the colour of your whole discography not just this one album because mm. you've you've done you know you've done that kind of two blokes thing yeah. and now you've got like women's voices and very and not just because hey i want to put a woman on the track
1: no it was yeah i mean we wanted to represent women on the album that was that was something we wanted to do but yeah you're right it had to be good as well and so it was very nerve not nerve-wracking but I didn't think it would be as good as it was across the board, you know, not just with the female collaborations, but generally just everything about it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, because you've had very, very good reviews, haven't you?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: F- from it. And like, uh, it's easy to say, oh yeah, whatever. But at the same time, it, it means something.
1: It it does. Yeah. It was like a dream come true again for us because it pulled us out of the old sleeper mods. And I think it's pulled us into something new. Um, And we've managed to go up a notch. And in order to survive in this business, I think you have to do that. But it's easier said than done.
0: COVID provided good material for spare ribs. Apart from a few ideas, the bulk of the songs were written in real time as they were living through the lockdowns. But like many of us, Jason and his wife Claire also have a young family. And sometimes this made working from home particularly challenging coming off not doing any of that stuff like drugs and alcohol anymore you've said that your mornings are such a revelation to you Mm -hmm. at the moment I mean so what's it been like working and kind of being all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the morning and being with your kids and then having this album to work
1: on it was hard work because you just can't have the kids in all the time it's not natural they need to be at school; they need to be forming relationships with people of their own age. they need to be experiencing life through that lens uh and so to have them there all the time, it was too much, but we got we did it you know it didn't get too dark, nobody lost their minds uh <laughs> It was relatively calm most of the time, as calm as it can be for parents because it does you know you, there it can be tense. I have screamed at them a few times, you know we all do don't we and yeah. uh you, you spend the rest of your days beating yourself up about it. But that's just how it is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty it was pretty tough. And then the ideas I'd have to do at night when the kids were in bed.
0: Unable to get into the studio during the pandemic, Jason would get creative with his workspace. How did you write I Don't Rate You?
1: I wrote it in the car, actually. Really? Uh, uh, Andrew sent me two songs, I Don't Rate You and Spare Ribs, the music to both of those. It took me an hour to get a rough idea on each of those and then it took me an hour to two hours in the car
0: why were you sitting in the car
1: because the kids were in bed and I was doing it in the evening and it was a summer's night yeah I remember it well just sitting in the car thinking about how because the music was so good and it was just it was just teasing me Mm. so I like come on you know you're not going to get anything for these Mm -hmm. you may as well just leave it forget it (laughs) But I was like, no way. And I, I just sat there and thought, what what would I do, you know? And then I, I just came up with those ideas. The
0: song Spare Rips actually begins with, Swishing past shoes, I got my bedtime, won't get to bed blues. Perhaps a reference to his kids? He then juxtaposes images of homeless people in his own neighbourhood Against Elon Musk and his Twitter feed that downplayed the pandemic as more people lost their lives.
2: She's a one like that, that's what he said. Blokes that kiss our silly yet Blokes commercial boring twat. I don't really like things like that. I don't rate you.
0: I don't rate you as a comment on social media itself. And this new ecosystem of having to rate everything, endlessly cultivating more likes and followers that often aren't even real people.
2: What did you all not know, mean? What did you know mean?
0: I don't break it. You know, it's got a kind of menacing prodigy
2: uh-huh.
0: sonic landscape. You had a chance to work with Prodigy. What was that like?
1: When Liam got in touch and asked me if I wanted to collaborate, I, I you can't turn it down, you know. They, to me, they hadn't lost any face. They, they'd managed to carry what they were doing and carry it very res- respectfully. So um, I, I jumped at the chance, to be honest. Got the email from him. We talked about it, recorded something in Nottingham, sent it down to him. Uh, the song made the album, I her really proud of it you know it sounds better after year after year it's like a bit of fine wine yeah. you know what i mean
0: <laughs> No, i agree and you got to be in the video as well you just look so comfortable in, yeah, with, yeah with them they just you guys just look like you were in the band or you've been mates for forever
1: liam's the one that is the diplomat i think the rest of them you know maxim keith obviously uh, they took the you know the bit of a backseat type thing they're their own people mm-hmm. Uh, But obviously lovely people, you know what I mean? But Liam was kind of the spokesperson uh, in a lot of respects. It was a real experience to watch a band of that magnitude operate like they do and just to watch them sit there in silence and how they connect to the industry moving on after nearly 20-odd years of being in it, you know.
0: Did you learn lessons from that?
1: Yeah. It made me realize that you come into the game, you get applauded, and then you become part of the scenery. And so you've got to deal with that. Mm. And how do you deal with that? And I've got a lot of ideas from them as to how you do that. But I simply you just carry on, you know, and you do your own thing. You don't give a fuck what people think. You know what I mean?
0: I think you've said what motivates good ideas is pain and looking at things honestly. What does it mean for you to be able to do what you guys have been doing as as sleep at mods and also spare ribs, you know, which is really resonates with folks everywhere even more during this pandemic and everything that's gone down.
1: I think that's the only way that it, it keeps me interested. It inspires me, you know, those things. And it's like, you've got to nail that. It's important for me to nail the pain that's going through my head and the boredom and the frustration and also the negative aspects about myself Whatever they may be, whether it be bitterness or jealousy or envy or whatever, you know, paranoia, it's important for me to nail those in songs because that is my life and that's what I see around me. It just so happens that we everything is so heavily politicized. Politics is very close to us at the minute. I think we're going through a change. Humanity is going through a massive change that will probably keep going before we reach a point where we can turn down and say, well, yeah, you know, we've actually progressed. I think it's important to catch all that, to catch the the madness of the day-to-day, of the infantile politicians, just the childishness of policies, of greed, of complete darkness, of evil, of everything, of corruption, all of those things, but capture them in a creative way, in a way that, means something so
0: if, if things got better we might not need sleaford mods anymore
1: yeah i think there'd be a different sleaford mods for the time wouldn't there? it's like as a species are we ever going to get to a point where we are harmonious you know are we ever going to get to a point where there is going to be no dissonance within our cognitive thoughts. I don't know. We are a very impulsive, chaotic entity, aren't we, as as people? Even though we think we're full of reason and intelligence, there are times when we are completely insane. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know, will that thread carry on? You're
0: not going to like write love songs? (laughs) No,
1: probably not. I don't know. I think there'd have to be a love song in a different... I mean, love songs can be done in various ways, can't they? They don't just have to be Out and out cheese, do they? You know. (laughs) I mean, that's not love, anyway, is it? I mean, is it? I don't know. Is it?
0: i know, just putting you on the spot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Out there, I run my fingers through my hair. I wanna tell the bloke that's drinking near the shop. it ain't the foreigners, and it ain't the fucking cop, but he don't care.
0: You've been listening to Under the Radar Podcast featuring Jason Williamson of Sleaford Mods. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward with help from Wendy Redfern. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next
2: time. it ain't the foreigners and it ain't the fucking cop, but don't care. Why's this con got police protection? He wasn't even running in the last election. I bet his partner at night says things like, it's all for the good of your ideas. (laughs) Putting milk in the bowls of his children's inevitable tears every morning. Insane. Watch him get depressed under the lockdown stress.